Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm delighted that we are joined today by Neil Barnfather, MBE. Uh, Neil is a serial entrepreneur and, and currently working for a technology company in a really exciting space, which is indoor mapping. Um, so, Neil, I'd love to have you tell us a bit about yourself, your journey, because you, you you know you've had a, a really interesting career. Um, so. Please, over to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing. Thank you. Um, wow. Uh, the journey began um, <laughs> many, many years ago, really. Um, I've been visually impaired all of my life, um, yearning to uh, achieve a maximum that I possibly could um, to both impact uh, society and our community. Uh, so I very, consider myself very uh, altruistic and um, community-driven. Uh, I'm also a big believer in technology and it the through innovation and and the use of technology, the the enabling factors of that, particularly to people with disabilities. Um, when I left school, I went and worked at a software company and uh, in London, was very promptly uh, offered an opportunity to go and uh, work in Finland at Nokia, which was just absolutely sensational, truly amazing opportunity. Um, I, I I progressed very well at Nokia. Um, but when my site began failing to such a point where I felt I couldn't be productive enough in that space, um, I, I left post and came back to the UK uh, seeking something, a, a, something more manageable for me, but more importantly, to be closer to the people I knew and, and an environment that I recognized uh, from a previous visual experience, as it were. Um, I very quickly realized that opportunities in employment context were extremely hard to get even though I thought I had a wealth of experience and my expectation was that it should be easy to get work, um, it, it wasn't. And, it, and that remains true to this day. Many disabled people struggle with that. So um, I, I began what many have quoted as being um, one of the most prolific entrepreneurial journeys going. Um, to date, I've started, uh, I'm actually on, I've, I've cracked 19 businesses uh, that I've successfully exited from. And um, They've all been involved in technology to varying degrees across every possible conceivable industry from aviation through to telecommunications uh, and, and even vending. So I've been there. I've seen it all. And um, I suppose I have a passion for, for sort of starting businesses. And uh, the customer experience is really the thing that drives me um, on, a, on a more sort of personal level. I'm a big political uh, commentator. I like to believe that change comes from people getting involved and and contributing and and indeed i i take that philosophy through to our community so i, I put a lot of time and effort into uh helping um both uh, younger people with uh disabilities and indeed their families excellent and 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 um uh, I've, I've always interested in so we've got a bit of a shared heritage if you like uh in terms of sort of working with uh the scandinavians and then also i think you know, uh, Antonio and I both come from Siemens. Antonio's route was through Nokia Siemens. So, um, and likewise, I think we all have a, a real massive interest in that social good uh, aspect of things. So you're now at a, another technology company. This time, it's not one you've founded yourself, but it is super interesting. Uh, and it's one that, that, that I'm working with you and uh, with my day job hat on um that we'll we'll be implementing some stuff with you but can you tell us a little bit about good maps and, and what it is and 
uh, and the possibilities of the technology because I think it's fascinating. Sure. Yeah, um, and and it should be said that I I joined the company very much on the back of the fact that it was the ability to combine my altruistic side uh, with my commercial acumen. Uh, I really, really felt a strong desire to be involved in the organization. I reached out. Um, I was very graciously received by the company. And um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm heading up uh, European efforts for good maps. It's an indoor um, navigation solution providing point-to-point uh, navigation and uh, location information, uh, predominantly focused on the built environment, although we do offer support for outdoor locations too. But in essence, the the thrust of the work is the built environment. Um, We offer a solution which allows people who are using either Android or iPhone uh, smartphone technology to access spaces um, irrespective of um, whether or not there is any barriers produced or challenges produced perhaps via a disability. So it's an inclusion tool. It's not specifically aimed at uh, our community, but it was designed, and this was the real thing that really inspired me to get in touch in the first place. Um, you know that I I wanted I loved the, I loved the initial starting point, which is how do we get a blind person from the door of a building to to the place they want to be, and that premise that um, Satnav gets you to the door of the building and then sort of euphemistically shouts out in an almost eureka way, you have arrived. And that's not true because no one was seeking the door of the place. They were seeking what's within the space. And if we can help people explore those spaces, get to where they want to go, then we provide job opportunities. We provide um, opportunities for those people to spend money if they're customers. Uh, We provide opportunities for healthcare uh, by getting people to appointments. And it can truly be anyone. You know, this is uh, people pushing pushchairs, people in wheelchairs, people who are blind, uh, people maybe who struggle with anxiety. So it gives them the opportunity to explore the location ahead of their visit. Employers looking to diversify their workforces. It provides the opportunity not just to tick a box and say, hey, we welcome people, but truly to be able to say, here is a digital map of our location. Here is an ability to help employees move around in those spaces. So it's um. It's a truly amazing technology. There's a great bunch of people behind the scenes working to make it better. And um, it, it's such a wonderful company and, and wonderful place to be. Neil, this is Deborah, and um, which you probably will figure out since I'm the only woman on the call. <laughs> but yeah, but I, we were told um, you're, you know, for years that we could not make something like this accessible. It just wasn't even possible, which I never thought that was true, but, you know, uh, people have to have the will to do it. And um, before we got online, you were talking about just a few examples. And one of them was an example about the trains in uh, the UK. And I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, the door lock and that on air, because making sure that things are mapped out um, it, it, like you said, it can lead to employment. It can lead to true inclusion. It can, but it's you. You were even talking once again offline about how, as a person that's blind, when you go into a new bathroom, every single one of them is designed differently, and it's so confusing. And I know I get confused sometimes. You put your hands under the water. Sometimes you, I mean, under the spigot, and it goes. Sometimes you don't. Yep. And, and every time I have to stop and try to figure out, you know, what to do. Well, how in the world do do, do you do it if you can't see it? Um, but it, it's just so important. And one thing I, I want to continue to remind our audience is that 
as we make things more accessible to people that are blind and people that have mobility issues, everyone benefits from this design. So I was just wondering if you would tell the audience just a little bit about it, because I think sometimes people forget about little things like, do you care if the bathroom door is flung open when you're using the restroom? You know? <laughs> sure. The, the, the story I was recounting to you is um, one of the UK operators uh, over here, they released a, a fleet of new trains. Fantastic. Really, really great. Um, and the once once inside the electric doors were very well marked tactile markings slide the thing open slide it closed and the lock button was marked but the way you determined if it was locked for well over a year was an, a colored indicator right <laughs> okay so here i am you know you know needing to use this thing and i'm i'm not actually certain if the door is locked and that that's an appalling oversight I, you know, I often question how on earth these things get past, you know, designers and, you know, this is not novel, right? People have been blind for centuries. So how is it that, you know, someone doesn't sit there and say, you know, and we talk about modern concepts of universal design and this sort of, this sort of principle that designers and creators and innovators should be thinking about all demographics, which of course is, is, is nigh on impossible to think of everyone, but I don't think it's difficult to imagine if I close my eyes, could I use this? Um, and, you know, so and it, it took them a, such a long time to resolve that, even though, you know, every visually impaired person using that space, you know, would have commented and did comment. And, and it just seems preposterous it, to me that, you know, we have the Equality Act in this country, which is, you know, even though that it has its failings, I, I personally say that that should have clearly resolve that issue well and truly. And it, and it just doesn't make sense. I mean, there are many of us examples, particularly of services that roll out and people fail to make them accessible and usable by a wide range of people. Um, looking at the, the, the point I made uh, again offline about how I, I often quote this, that, you know, when you have to be entrepreneurial about using the bathroom, you know, you can, you know, you become naturally entrepreneurial about the way you look at life and the way you you examine things. And uh, I took part in an interview um, probably close to a decade ago now, which was really examining why am I so entrepreneurial? What is that driving force? And I hadn't really realized up until that interview when I examined it in my own mind that actually it's my disability that's made me this entrepreneurial. You know, it, it's it's that that having having the, this 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 viewpoint of the world, yes, a blind person just said that, you know, has made me um, consider things so differently. Um, and it, it truly has made me realize that I see things differently. And as a benefit of that is I'm not distracted by a lot of visual, you know, you go into so many meetings these days, PowerPoint and all of that sort of jazz. And, and, I, I'm I'm absolutely fixated on detail, and you know I'm I'm in curiosity of endless curiosity. Why are we doing it like this? How can we make it better? And I find that that's that's a unique thing, but it's it's not unique in the disability community. So many disabled people ask how and why far more so than our able-bodied counterparts. So um, yeah, that's that's sort of the heritage there. So uh, so no, you were telling us a series of. Uh of stories that make things uh, very clear why they need to be accessible. So um, 
Do you feel that, you know, uh, when we talk about accessibility, disability, about good practices, best practices, sometimes we have a lot of uh, enforce, oh, guidelines, uh, you know, practices. Do you feel that we should focus more on the storytelling part that is able to highlight things that are more real than sometimes hiding everything behind, you know, like we're saying, a PowerPoint with guidelines or something like that? I, I truly think that that's absolutely true, that my my position is very much that the day you you put a 30-page guidebook in front of someone, you know, a, a playbook or whatever you want to call the thing, the day you say, sit here, read this, the person's forgotten the final bit by the end of it, you know, but if I if I, if you bring in, and this comes back to employment opportunities, if you have people who, you know, a much more diverse workforce, you can actually... You know, even if it's incidental, by the way, even if it's just watching the way I function in a kitchen, maybe making my coffee, right? You're going to see um, things about what how I interact with that space that you might make you think, hmm, if we did that differently, that would have been better for it. And you can learn things by just having a diverse workforce, by having people with disabilities in your space that get applied in the real world far more so than making everyone every six months read the latest guidelines and the latest playbook and the latest PowerPoint presentation, which actually are dry. They're flavorless. They're lacking in context. And context comes from experience. Uh, and I really do believe that. And the other point that just, just to tag in there um, is that to me, accessibility, usability, and inclusion, they're functions of both customer and employee experience. We have to have a situation where, you know, people stop looking at accessibility, uh, inclusion and, and usability as requirements, as, oh, we must do this. And we need to be looking at this. This is part of our customer or our employee experience. Right. And, and um, we at our own employer yesterday we launched a new whole approach to employee experience and our ceo was talking about how accessibility and the challenges of, of delivering that are key to creating better employee experiences so i i think that what's really encouraging for me is that there is real movement and momentum amongst senior leaders that have recognized that this is this is not a separate thing. This is something that's embedded in in an overall good experience. Um, of course, like you, I'm working in the field for a long time, a pragmatist and a realist. We know that we're not going to change those things overnight. Now, as much as we would like to you know, have some privacy whilst we're on, on the loo in the train, retrofitting those trains takes months. They should have done it up front. But once it's out the gate, that process of, of of going back and fixing it is really hard. Um, so, so, how do we put a positive spin on that? Well, actually, what we do is we say, well, you know, let's do it up front. You know, let's exactly. let's save you the cost of retrofitting. Let's do the the inclusive design piece. Yes, and I think that that's the, that's really important to understand that a the cost of doing it up front is negligible, literally a, a pittance in relation to. Um, the, the cost, whereas the cost of doing it later is not only potentially the retrofit, but there can also be, I mean, at the further end of retrofit and across that spectrum at the other end, 
There's all the bad press that goes with it. There's the negativity, the bad customer experience, and frankly, litigation. You know, people sue over these things, and quite rightly so. And you know, what kind of organization are we? What kind of what kind of institute are we? What kind of organization? What kind of company? Are we the kind of people that that want that negative experience? Want that that the stuff that happens at that end of the spectrum? Or are we the kind of company that want to be always seeming to be prioritizing the needs of everyone? And I don't, I don't find it complex to do it. I think it's really straightforward. It just has to come from the top. People saying from day one, right, you know, at the leadership level, this matters. Yeah, absolutely. So we just absolutely need the, the stuff from the top. And I, and I know Deborah wants to comment in a second. Um, that that leadership messaging to the people within their organization has a huge impact because without that clear signal, people always have conflicting priorities and, and there's always a reason to ignore doing the thing that includes. So so absolutely we need that top-down messaging. Deborah, you wanted to comment. Yes, and I agree with that. I agree with both of the Neils um, because uh, I I know that I one time was training a very large IT company, ICT company in the United States, and we were training them, to, you know, to make sure that all of their sites and their apps were fully accessible. And in, during the training classes, it was interesting. The students knew so much about accessibility; they already knew it. So I I, I asked them well, if you already know how to do this, why aren't you doing it? And they said, oh, no, no, no. They tell us what to do, what to prioritize. I'm not going to volunteer and say, hey, shouldn't this be accessible? So it must come from this top and it's got to, you know, be done very deliberately. But I, I, I don't understand why anyone would design, you know, a bathroom where we can't tell whether or not the door locks, because in the first place, it is going to impact people with visual impairments, but it it impacts so many other people. There are 19 million American men that have, that are colorblind. So maybe they can tell by, I mean, it's so, it's just so short-sighted and, you know, we can be, there's, it is, I don't understand why we would build anything that doesn't work for all human beings. And I think it's maybe we can look at society and say, wow, aren't we glad that we make Neil be so creative and innovative to even figure out how to go to the bathroom and lock the door. But it's just I think it's ridiculous. We're not designing for humans. I know that um, Christine Hemphill of Open Inclusion is working on some really cool design ideas to really encourage designers to think more about designing for all humans. But it is not just designing for people that are blind. It is designing so that it works for everybody. And I, I just am tired of the lack of leadership with this. And I'm glad in the United States that we're suing everybody. And it's unfortunate, but I wish that, because I, why do we have to sue you to make you comply? Why do you have to, we sue you to make you include us? But I guess that's what we have to do. But Antonio, I know you had a comment. No, and and to, to your point and to Neil's point about bringing, uh, designing things accessible from, uh, from the beginning, uh, I can, can tell an, uh, a story uh, that happens in Ireland, especially affects uh, housing, where people who are entitled to, uh, people with disabilities who are entitled to uh, housing accommodations, uh, 
they are they have been trying to engage with government authorities to have a say at the beginning of the construction not after and they are and they're almost screaming and crying you know you can save so much but just by listening to us before then then letting the builder to build the house and then retrofitting everything so it's it's quite you know, and, and we're talking you know, we're talking about the house uh, Neil was talking about, about the train this is not just a small thing you know millions of uh, uh, euros or pounds are involved on this project this is a really big deal so it's important that uh, we all became more professional in the way how we address this topic I, I think the interesting thing is, if you think about it, you know, from the employment perspective, if I can't get on a train and go to the bathroom, then how do I get to my job? Possibly, you know, depends circle whether you need the train to get there or whatever. But, you know, and it, so if transport's not accessible and usable, how do we get there? If, if I can't live in a property near to the office or within commuting distance because the property is not suitable, I can't go to work. If I can't work, I can't be a productive member of society. I have self-esteem issues. I have low, you know, so I need healthcare, which costs society money. And I'm not productive. I'm not paying taxes because I'm not in employment. So we need to start looking at that. Th there's a big cultural shift that needs to shift from whether it's the, the pity bucket of, ah, oh, you know, and whether it's the burden bucket of you know people who are on welfare and need need state support and things like that to the this is a missed opportunity disabled people not having the appropriate accommodation not having the correct access to transport not having access to services that we can buy and products that we can buy is insane so we need to do more as a as a, as a, a global community of businesses of organizations and of companies I agree. I agree. But so when it comes to the maps, I know that I've seen some very interesting works coming from like IBM, uh, trying to map out things, you know, on stations and stuff. But I think a gigantic conference, and I don't know if we're going back to gigantic conferences, but probably, but just navigating that space, uh, even as somebody that is sighted, is overwhelming. So how I, I was just wondering, how did you figure out how to um, start mapping it? I, I, was, I was just curious about it. So the, and it, the, you, you yeah, mean the ahead. digital, how, how does it physically happen? Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, the, the process is really straightforward. We just literally um, have uh, a, a, an individual walking around the space. They wear something that looks very much... Uh, like a, um, uh, a backpack uh, that's out of the Ghostbuster movies. We go around, we do a LiDAR scan. Um, once the LiDAR scan's done, we convert it into a digital map, um, three-dimensional representation. And uh, from that, there's some, uh, some wizardry that happens behind the scenes. That's then accessible to anyone who has the app. The app is free of charge to the end user. The, the venues pay for the service. So that's whether that's a shopping mall, a transport provider, or, or indeed your employer in an office. It, you know, it doesn't really matter. The idea is very much that the venues provide the service like they would Wi-Fi for, for guests and for employees. Um, and the end user using the app, does, you know, has no increased costs. It's, it's free to those individuals. So on that, we know that some modern buildings already built using 3D models. So a lot of data already exists. Uh, are you taking advantage of that or you, or you just prefer to use the method that you just described? 
Unfortunately, it has to be obtained at this point in time because of the unique nature of the, we combine uh, two pieces of information, both the LIDAR and uh, geo-referenced images. But there would be a hope uh, in time, and we are in actively investigating uh, technologies constantly to provide alternative options. So today, no, this is the way it has to be done. But in time, the expectation would be that there will be a selection of technologies and organizations will be able to choose, you know, what's what fits best, you know, uh, with, within their space. What kind of users have we got? What is the expectation of how that space is going to be used? And um, my, my expectation certainly is that the technology will continue to improve and evolve. So this is just the beginning of this journey, really. And so, yeah, I, I think that the, the, the journey is yeah, really exciting because there's an awful lot of inaccessible indoor spaces yet to map. Um, and uh, as someone with sight that can still get lost inside a building, I'm also you know, thinking about how I might, might use it. Um, and that, and I, Neil, what's I want, fascinating, sorry yeah. to say, is, is that's been the real, um, uh, if you look at segments that, are, that we are actively approaching, transport providers who are the obvious people if you said you know what segment's the most obvious place that would win out for this transport ones are the most difficult to to you know talk to about this and to to have actually reach out and yet the complete opposite is true in the corporate space where corporate organizations have literally totally got it a hundred percent and it's people who've made comments just like what you have it's not you know the fact that it's helps their disabled employees and visitors is seen as the icing on the cake they they recognize exactly what you've just said that getting around spaces even when your eyes function and all your limbs function and everything's rock and rolling in in your accessibility space is actually really difficult subject to if you've been there a million times before if it's your normal place of work if it's a desk that you normally sit at and we're getting into more and more you know a culture where people you know, hot swap their desks where they they arrive at a building and they're not not familiar with it, etc. And yeah. you know, and it absolutely people need guiding in the built environment. It's just that's the way it is. Yeah, I, I, I work with lots of clients, and I you know work with a large broadcaster that all of their buildings look the same internally, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and and they have this kind of alphanumerical system for where you are in the building which doesn't really help you orientate at all and it's very easy to get lost because all of the things look the same um so so it, it removes some of that anxiety because actually you know being late for a meeting can make you really anxious um yes, not knowing where you need to be in, in you know that kind of thing is also like really challenging for the neurodivergent population. But I, you made a point earlier, which I, I kind of want to go back on because it's something that's also one of my hobby horses, which is was was around. You were talking about the economics, mm. right? And and you were saying that there's there is this sort of imperative. You know, at the moment we've been doing the pity bucket and the you know the funding bucket, but actually. Um, I've been going on for a while now about how we ought to be treating exclusion like pollution because essentially this is a um a, a problem it's an externality inaccessibility is an externality it's it's essentially a a failure of the design and build process and someone else is footing the bill 
And so when we start applying these environmental sustainability frameworks to stuff, then you, you can actually see how it can work in organizations and how it can work at a macro level. Now, I'm not saying that this is going to solve all of the uh, the issues of, of each individual product design, but what you then have is this framework and approach that, that large organizations understand already and is embedded in the UN Sustainability, Sustainable Development Goals. Companies report on the sustainability. They report on ESG, and essentially accessibility is the S and the G, the social and the governance part. And that there are also positive externalities because when you do the inclusive design approach, you get the curb cut, right? And that that positive upside is also an externality. So you can you can take you know well established socioeconomic theories and start applying them to inclusion. And by doing this, we're we're then actually starting to measure the 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 macro level impact of including people in society, you know, getting better tax revenue, reducing the cost to the taxpayer of of people not being able to meet their potential because we've designed them out. So, so I mean, I'm I'm 100% with you. This is, uh, you know, this it's, it's a rights issue, but it's also a, a social structure issue. And and I think that that every organisation, whether they be government or large companies or small companies, can have a role to play in this. I 100% agree. I mean, I, there isn't much to add to that comment. The reality is, there is economic loss across the board, whether it's spend power whether it's um, tax revenue, you know, whether it's um, anything, you know, if you curtail someone's ability to participate in anything, whether that's, you know, service, you know, products and and employment and and so forth in life, you you curtail their ability to, to efficiently and effectively contribute. And at the end of the day, you know, that's what society is all about, isn't it? You know, we all contribute and we all gain. But the day you start curtailing someone's ability to contribute, then you also, unfortunately, enhance. And it's a yin and yang thing. You know, if you curtail my ability to contribute, you know, and, and to consume, then you the, the upshot is magnified in my, you know, drawdown from society. And But if you make it so that I can participate fully in your services, in your products, in the employment opportunities, in healthcare, et cetera, then you decrease the drain on the other side of that. And I use healthcare less, I use the welfare system less, I buy more of your services and your products, which is just a win-win across the board. It just, I don't understand how people struggle with this. Yeah, no, well, I think it's because they they take a very siloed, compartmentalized view of things, and they're only looking at the cost of an individual thing. It's only when you can get to that holistic macro-level view. Yes. Even within the sort of the benefit system itself, you know, you, you have one lot of benefits where they're trying to reduce the cost and others where they're trying to get people into employment and they're not joined up. So they don't do a kind of total impact assessment across the piece that you get these these sort of systemic inequities built in that are not only bad for people with disabilities, but they're bad for society as a whole and for economies. So, so yeah, that that 30,000 foot view is really important for people to have. Um, we've reached the end of our half hour already. It seems re- rather to have gone too quickly. I need to thank the people that keep us going, the, the Microlink, the Barclays Access, the MyClearText for keeping us captioned, 
and and I say thank you, Neil. It's been a real pleasure talking with you as always. Uh, we look forward to you joining us on Twitter on Tuesday night. Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, the time, and I, I'm really looking forward to uh, speaking with anyone who wishes to uh, interact on uh, Tuesday. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you, Antonio. Thank you, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs>